Mac Powered Users, Episode 372, Dr. Durang Returns. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd, alongside with my pal David Sparks. Hello, David. Hi, Katie. How are you today? I'm feeling a little chilly, I must admit, sitting here. Um, you know, we had to turn the temperature way down because the snowman has returned to Mac Power Users. Yes, he has. The icy cold snowman. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Drang. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, it's been, been too long. Yeah, it's been, what, five years, four years, something like that. So for those of you who don't know, our friendly snowman, Dr. Drang, is a uh, is an internet personality who shall rename um, uh, nameless. Keep it, keeping it on the down low. Dr. Drang is an engineer. He's an expert witness. Doesn't necessarily want to have a deposition where they ask him about stuff he said on Mac Power users or on the internet. Yes, that would that would be the main reason I I remain pseudonymous. I used to always worry about that. You know, someday I'm going to go into a courtroom or a deposition. Somebody's going to say, hey, Max Sparky, you know, and I, I tried to keep it kind of secret for a while. Then I decided I don't care anymore. Do do what you will to me. Yeah. I mean, what can they do to a lawyer? Yeah. Uh, but uh, that they that they haven't already done. <laughs> yeah. Well, right. But when you're a witness, you're, you are at the at the mercy of the attorneys. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. And attorneys are such. Pains, you know. Yeah, I know. If they only knew you, if they only knew the friendly snowman that strikes terror into the hearts of young children. Um, <laughs> in fact, I think it was on your original Mac Power Users episode where you told us the story of your beloved snowman avatar. Yes, yeah he he was uh, he was a snowman at a kind of uh, like it was kind of like a teacups ride, very similar to uh, Disney World's teacups ride, except horrifying. Yeah, yeah, except that they were like snowballs, and there was this giant uh, snowman in the middle who was, I would say, smiling benevolently, benevolently uh, onto you as you, you know, rotated around and spun. Uh, a lot of people, though, do think that it's kind of a frightening look. I, I don't know. Anyway, this was back in the 60s at a place called Santa's Village uh, in the Chicago suburbs, and many, many years later... I was uh, with my with my sons going to some uh, scouting type thing outing, and the place we were staying at had bought the central snowman from that ride um, uh, from Santa's Village, which had kind of gone out of business, and they had it there in their lobby, and I took a picture of it, and that's where my avatar comes from. Yeah, does his head shift from side to side and his eyes like rotate around? Because I I can see that I I I'm envisioning that happening. No, no, Katie, this was the '60s. You know, this uh, things were not things were not that uh, evolved unless you were at Disneyland. They can update it. They have animatronics now. I, I think we need to pay to get the snowman updated. This uh, this is vintage. Well, I think the uh, where is the place? It's it's near. Uh, it's a place near Starved Rock here in Illinois. If unless they've sold it, I don't know. I haven't been back there in uh, over a decade. Anyway, well, the thing about it is, every time I go to your website, that's at leancrew.com, L E A N C R E W. The snowman's eyes follow me around the room. If I like leave your side open and I move from one side to the other, he is still looking at me. I hate that. Yeah, well, I um, 
Well, live with it, David. Just deal with it. Okay. <laughs> okay, I will. And of course, you've got the famous John Lennon quote, and now it's all this. So I, uh, I, I love your website, Dr. Drang, and, and geeks should, because you, you always step in with some little bit of nerdery. I mean, I think we may have even talked about it in the last time you were show, but I remember you did an exposition on the failed bolt in your uh, lawnmower at one point. Yes. Yeah. But you also you also do lots of little bits of automation stuff, and, and we're always interested in ways to make our computers work harder for us. Uh, so it, it's great uh, that you put stuff up there. A lot of times you put it up there in a format that normal mortals can share and use, even people who aren't programmers can kind of use your your work product at some point so i recommend everybody follow uh, dr drang over at link crew thank you but you're an interesting guy and you're always doing interesting things with your apple hardware so we felt like it'd been long enough we should have you back and interestingly you were telling us before the show that a lot of your workflows have changed since the last time you were on yeah well the software i use um actually i i i think the uh the hardware i use has changed a lot less than the software i mean other than i've been you know updating my uh my iPhone regularly, but I'm pretty sure that the MacBook Air that I'm looking at right now is the same MacBook Air I was using uh, five years ago. So how come you haven't haven't got yourself a new Mac yet? I, I'm cheap, and and this works. It's uh, I just haven't felt the need for it. Now it's it's getting long in the tooth. I did actually have to have uh, some repairs done on it last year, and I. I thought very hard about, you know, should I be putting money into a five plus year old machine? But it was only a couple hundred bucks and it's now working perfectly. And uh, the MacBook Pro that came out recently, the one with the touch bar, is, although I was looking forward to it, I don't think it's for me. I think it's RAM uh, limitations are a, a little too limiting for what I want to do. And especially considering that I, I keep my, I keep my max for a long time. I keep my max for five or six years. What, what is the, like, what is, what is the task you're doing where you're worried that the, was it eight gigabyte or 16 gigabytes is the max RAM, right? Yeah. Yeah. What is it that you're doing that you think 16 won't, won't be good enough for? Well, you would think that it does seem weird, uh, just because, uh, I'm, I'm working on a four gigabyte MacBook Air right now. Uh, but I, um, it's, it's more that because I keep these things, uh, these machines for so long, my fear is that, um, uh, that Mac OS is just going to require more and going to eat up more. And, you know, and apps always just keep eating up more RAM and more RAM. And, it seemed to me that uh, that an upper limit of 16 gigabytes on a device that's purporting to be a pro device is just not quite what I want. And uh, you know, as we were talking before the before the show uh, started, uh, I believe, as you do, that that restriction is going to go away in the next iteration of the MacBook Pro. And because I believe that, I kind of think that. It would be foolish for me to buy it uh, the way it currently is. I will hang around and and get the next one probably. You're thinking more in terms of like future proofing. It's not that 16 gig won't take care of you today, but you're worried in four years it won't. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I mean, I, and you know what I do, I I do things that I think are pro stuff, 
but um, I, apparently a lot of people don't think they're pro stuff because I'm not doing animation and I'm not doing sound recording and I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm doing things with computers that were computer stuff when I was younger, which is um, a lot of analytical work, a lot of computational work. And that used to really tax computers. But now that computers are start are you know doing more with video and stuff like that, that's the stuff that taxes a computer nowadays. That and gaming, of course. It's interesting because that pro moniker really is a loaded word. You know, you say it's a pro device, and that that causes all sorts of grief for people. Um, you know, we we've heard some from our friends who are programmers who want many cores and lots and lots of RAM, and it could really make a material difference in how they get their work done. And uh, they are justifiably pros. But then we hear from some of our listeners who are not uh, computer programmers, but maybe they're people who do a little graphics design work or people who are own a business or a dentist or whatever. And they just want a, you know, a high end Mac. And for them, the demands aren't quite as much as a, you know, traditional, I guess, if you're going to make the next avatar or build an app type pro. Yeah, I think the, the biggest, the most pro thing that I do is uh, on my Macs is that I tend to run a lot of apps at the same time. I, I think that pro moniker is is open to a lot of interpretation. You know, just like David, the power user, you know, moniker is open to a lot of interpretation. I think, you know, you definitely are a pro user, just like you definitely are a power user. But but what does that mean anymore? You, you are doing very high level tasks with your machine, but the, the way that things have evolved, those aren't necessarily as processor intensive as they as they once were i think yeah that's right and and really you know as i said the most processor intensive thing that i can think of is is playing games and i don't think of playing games as being a pro activity but that really uh especially on the pc side uh that uh, and the the windows compatible machines that's really that drove and I assume it's still driving uh, the hardware of Windows machines. You know, that uh, when I was a Linux user, I would buy relatively inexpensive uh, computers that were quite powerful for what I needed them uh, to do. And it was largely because they were trying to meet the needs of computer gamers. And those were those were much more processor and certainly graphics intensive than I ever needed. It's just like in the maybe 60s or 70s, you know, teenagers would get cars and then they would soup it up, you know, get a bigger carburetor or whatever. Mm -hmm. And and then when I was growing up, that's what you did with PCs. You know, everything, you know, every piece was in play. So you get the latest and greatest um, graphics card or the bigger fans or whatever to try and make your machine just run a few more frames per second. Yeah. And when I was building my own machines, uh, you know, I... Uh, took advantage of that by usually buying stuff that was one generation behind and it was perfectly fine. It wasn't what a gamer would want to use because of course they'd get killed uh, if they weren't, you know, super fast, but it, it did my stuff perfectly well. Well, I think you're wise to wait another generation if you really want to get more RAM because you're not going to get it with this generation. Uh, this current flock of MacBook Pros has been Having done this show now since 2009, this has been the most divisive Mac I think I've ever seen in that we get email all the time from people who absolutely hate that it exists and hate it and 
people who buy it and love it too. So it is, it's definitely uh, divisive. I mean, would you agree, Katie? Uh, yeah, <laughs> especially, um, I think this has probably been one of the most divisive computers that Apple has introduced. Well, maybe the trash can was a little more divisive, but for sure. And I'm, I'm not really even fully sure where I stand on it. Yeah, I would almost say that the MacBook One that was also right, like right behind it, that was a controversial machine too. Yeah, but the MacBook One was never, uh, never geared towards power users or pro users. I mean, that that was always set for a very specific market. And the MacBook One, you knew what you were getting, and and Apple had a very uh, set market for who the Mac, uh, the MacBook was for. Um, I, you know, I I don't know about these the new machines that are coming out. Yeah, I think putting the the pro uh, name at the end of it was just like raving, uh, waving a, a red flag in front of people. And that's what has caused although you know, all the controversy, you know, although I do notice on my Twitter feed as I see people commenting and, and in blogs that I read, people who buy it actually like it more, I think, than the people who are who like me have just kind of looked it over and decided it's not for them. And, you know, one of the reasons I haven't written about it on the blog, I mean, apart from the fact that I don't write as much as I used to, is I, I don't know really what to say about something that I haven't used yet. And I, I may be, I, that's, of course, that's why I'm not a successful blogger. <laughs> details, details. I, I think it's really time for Apple to, you know, they get so stuck in these naming conventions. I they have clearly long since abandoned the the grid that Steve Jobs set up where you know he drew a four quadrant grid and said this is for pros this is for consumers this is a laptop this is a desktop pick one of these four and it's very clear where you stand um the lines for that have so long since been crossed maybe they just it's time to drop the pro moniker altogether from some of these products um, you know, I'm not sure I fully understand any of now Apple's naming conventions anymore. Well, I, I don't think it's that hard to figure out. I mean, I, I think they, in general, they have the consumer and the pro model, but over the years, they've, they've gone in and out of having an ultra light as well. Something that's just built for light lightness more than anything else. Right. Which, which I, which I kind of think is, is a, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think that is as much a pro thing. As anything else, that super light. I mean, we used to, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago with a laptop, um, the, these ultra light, well, they weren't called ultra lights, but very light laptops, you always paid a premium for them. Sure. Miniaturization is always expensive. Yeah. And um, so, so the MacBook Air was the original ultra light. And, and then the technology caught up where it became just the consumer model. And now, I feel like the new MacBook One, which is odd, is not called an Air, but it's the ultralight. And I would guess that in three or four years, that's just going to be the MacBook and there's not going to be an Air anymore. And then they're going to be back to having, at least in the laptop line, the the consumer and the pro model. But 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 the question really, which I think Katie makes a good point about is, it, you know, what is a pro anymore? And why is this one called pro? <laughs> I am, um, you know, I have one and it, it works fine for me and I'm happy with it. I, I don't use it every day, but when I need it, it's there and it works just fine. And, and I don't like to say that because people who need a pro laptop every day then start writing me and telling me how everything that's wrong with it. But the, uh, but I guess time will tell. 
but that was a little bit of a a, a, a rabbit hole for us. But I I'm glad to hear that you're still using your five year old Mac. That's my wife's five year old MacBook Pro is um just having a couple little issues, and she was asking me today, "Do you think we need to replace?" And I'm like, "No, I think probably a little repair." In fact, you said you just fixed your MacBook Air for a couple hundred bucks. What can you fix on a MacBook Air at this point? What is what can be replaced? I took it in, so it, uh, the screen was uh, goofy. I mean, I couldn't use it. I mean, the, the half the screen was blank and the other half was was had lines running through it and stuff like that. And so I took it in and it was it was kind of an intermittent thing. I would have assumed it's dead at that point. You're a dead man. Well, you know, it's uh, I took it in because it, it was intermittent. It wouldn't always happen. So I thought, you know, maybe this is uh, this is a bad connector or something like that. Um, maybe a. a a, a wire that has fatigued in a ribbon cable or something like that. So I took it in and uh, Apple has this um, program where and I don't know exactly what all it covers, but it covered me. And for, I can't remember, but I think it was less than $300. They would just do whatever they needed to get it back running again. It's called the flat rate repair program. Yes. And I don't know that it's highly advertised, but if you're someone who has had um, a, a major failure of a computer and, and it, honestly with the computers now, pretty much anything is going to be a pretty expensive repair other than like a, a keyboard replacement or a, a um, battery or something like that. But because they're so integrated, you know, just about anything, they'll swap out the logic board. And that can be a significant, significant repair. So Apple has started to introduce something that's called the flat rate repair program. Typically, it's not advertised. I'll have to look on the Apple site to see if they're advertising it now. But usually you can request it. And if they're not available at the Apple store, sometimes you can call and talk to a support specialist and request it and just ask them, what are the flat rate repair options on this machine where they will either replace the machine out with a refurb, which they always have the option of doing when you send something into Apple for repair, um, or just kind of swap out a major internal component and possibly refurb the ones that you've sent back to them um, for a flat fee. But I'm sorry, I just wanted to explain to people what that was. No, that's a good explanation. And I knew nothing about that when I went in. I just went in, you know, made the appointment with the Genius Bar and said, look, here's here's what it is. Take a look at it. What can you do for me? And can you do anything for me? And, and I have to make a decision as to whether I want to pay that or just kind of wait. And, uh, you know, at that point, I could have bought I could have bought a Mac. I probably would have bought a MacBook Pro if necessary, because I think it was uh, it was a little less old than the MacBook Airs at the time. Um, but I I felt you know when the when the number came back and whatever it was, but it was you know two three hundred dollars something like that. Uh, I thought, well, I'm going to get at least a year out of this. That's Better than jumping into a fifteen hundred to two thousand dollar machine that I'm not really all that thrilled about buying, and this would have been like the middle of last year. And all that, I mean, you can pass that thing down to maybe your son or your wife, or you can sell it to somebody. It's still a useful computer. Well, and and at the time, I was you know the the uh, iPad Pro had come out. And I was thinking, well, you know, can I can I have an I, I certainly wouldn't have an iPad uh, for all for my work machine, uh, but 
can I use this as my, can I use an iPad Pro as my home machine and occasional work machine? Uh, you know, work with it when I'm on the road or something like that. And, uh, you know, ultimately I did buy an iPad Pro back in August or something like that. Um, but it was after the, it was after the Mac, my venerable MacBook Air was repaired. But yeah, it was, it was a, it works out now uh, kind of as, I still use it more probably than my iPad, but I'm trying to change that. And, you know, eventually I hope that uh, uh, this old fellow is going to just kind of turn into that machine that I need when I absolutely need to have a Mac. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by MindNode 2, delightful mind mapping for the Mac, iPhone, and iPad. I honestly don't know why, but most mind mapping software is tedious. It makes you feel like mind mapping is work, and it's hard to get your arms around how it works. This is where MindNode comes in. They solve this problem by making a delightful mind mapper. That sounds like a silly term, right? Delightful mind mapping, but it's absolutely true in the case of this application. I hear from listeners all the time that hear these ad spots and give it a try, and they tell me it's the exact same experience they had. It's delightful. Mind maps are visual representations of your ideas, and it starts with a central thought and grows out from there. It's a great way to let your brain kind of cook on ideas as you're developing your next big project. This is what MindNode is so good at, because the application installs on your Mac, your iPad, and your iPhone. You've always got it with you. Uh, If I'm sitting at lunch and I think of an idea, I'll whip out my phone and add it to a mind map. If I'm sitting at my Mac, I can do the same thing. I've written books using MindNode. I've written long articles. I've even done legal briefs using MindNode. It's like a little shelf that your brain can just store ideas on while it's cooking on them. I love it. Despite the fact that MindNode is easy to use, it's also powerful. You can use it for brainstorming, like writing down your ideas and developing them. You can also use it to organize your thoughts. You can rearrange individual thoughts and concepts or entire branches to stay on top of your idea. MyNote has this great smart layout system that makes it automatically just look nice and clean as you do arrange these thoughts. You can also highlight important nodes using different colors, fonts, and strokes. You can even convert individual nodes into task items that you could either process right in MyNote or send out to Reminders or OmniFocus. And best of all, when you're all done, you can share that MindNode in many ways. You can publish it to the web, save it as PDF, or even save it to one of the competing mind mapping application formats. One of my favorite is to export to OPML, and then I can use it in an application like Scrivener. Either way, the power to create a mind map with just the touch of your finger or the click of your mouse is just sitting there waiting for you. Head over to mindnode.com today and check out this application. Like I said, a lot of other Mac Power users are really into it now. I bet you will be too. Thanks, MindNode, for supporting the Mac Power users. So, Doc, let's talk a little bit about what you're using this ancient Mac with only four gigabytes of RAM for. Um, I mean, because we talked about, you know, Pro versus Power and all those types of things. But, you know, what kind of apps are you using daily to get your work done on your Mac? Well, uh, you know, I, I looked... I looked at the show notes for when I was uh, on the last time, and I tend to think of myself as kind of a, kind of a static person. I don't change. I'm set in my ways. I don't change my workflows very often. Uh, turns out a lot of things have changed in the four to five years since I was on. Um, probably the biggest change 
uh, because it is the uh, app that I use the most, is that I've changed my uh, my text editor from TextMate. Remember TextMate? That was a nice app. Um, Pour one out, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's still around, but I, it's just not, uh, I don't know. It's not what it was. Marco, I think, still uses it. Um, I changed to BB Edit. Uh, which is, you know, really a venerable um, Macintosh application and have been perfectly happy with it. I, uh, you know, when I was, when I knew I was going to change, I started looking around and, you know, basically uh, there's always the option of going to Emacs or Vim and those options are out. I, you know, I, I did look one more time at them and said, no, okay, I'm not going to use those. Uh, I have used both of them in the past. I used Emacs for several years when I was a Linux user. I don't want to go back to that. Uh, Sublime Text is probably what most people would think of as the successor to TextMate. And I opened up, I got a, you know, a, a demo copy of Sublime Text and I opened it up and said, no. And which is in some ways, I think people would say that's unfair because I just, I looked at it and said, this does not look right. This, you know, I. Okay. So how long did it take you to make that decision? Was it like minutes or hours or days? It felt wrong right from the start, but I, but I, I fiddled with it and said, okay, well, I know this is highly customizable. Let me start customizing. And I started customizing and I was looking things up on the internet and I was you know, changing fonts and I was changing this and changing that and changing how tabs are handled and all, all of those sorts of things that you do um, or that you might have to do. And I kind of have um, developed this, um, this idea uh, as I've gotten older that if the thing doesn't look more or less right to me, if an app doesn't feel right Pretty soon after I first open it, it's not going to be for me. No matter how much customization can be done with it, and text uh, Sublime Text can be customized to a fairly well. I know that, but if if it if the developer has set it up in a way that just doesn't look right to you, you're going to be fighting the developer all the time with that app, and it's not worth it. And so, although Sublime Text has many, many features that I would think would be wonderful to have, um, I, I just, I did not want to go through the the way I would, all the many things that I would have to do to get it to, uh, to a setup that I liked. The, the configuration file, even after just using it for a couple of days, my configuration file was getting huge. And I thought, I, I don't want to have to maintain this configuration file um, over multiple com uh, computers. And I, yes, I know I can use Dropbox to sync things up and, and all of that. But it, it's just, I did that back in my Emacs using days. And, you know, in Linux, you didn't have a lot of choices. Uh, at least, you know, back in the late 90s, you didn't on what what you were going to, what text editor you were going to use. And so I was kind of forced into doing things like that. And I had a very long .emacs uh, file. I didn't want to go back to that. So 
uh, BB Edit looked right out of the box, more or less. I had, um, I, I was only a couple of versions out of date, so the update updating didn't cost very much. And when I opened it up, it looked pretty much right. I only had to make a few uh, fiddly changes here and there. They were easy to make, and I was done. And I was, and I, yes, I, of course, I do things with, with uh, BB Edit. I write new macro type scripts for it occasionally, but that's not the same as having to fiddle with the setup again and again and again and again. You know, you're talking about that. I was just thinking, we have got to have Rich Siegel on the show. Rich Siegel's the guy behind BB Edit. He's been a luminary of Mac software for years and years. And uh, he'd be a great guest. Yeah, I mean, Rich Rich worked uh, uh, for Lightspeed or Think, or, you know, they were basically the same company. I don't remember which came, I can't remember now which came first. And I mean, that goes back a long, long time. That goes back into the 80s. Uh, and I had Lightspeed Pascal or Think Pascal, and they had one of the great computer advertisements. I have ever seen their slogan, uh, and this was for their, this is either for Lightspeed C or Lightspeed Pascal. Um, their slogan was make mistakes faster. Uh, and for programmers that, that really, that really strikes a chord because all you do when you're programming is making mistakes and then fixing them. That, that, that is such a huge part of, of programming is this iterative process of working your way toward a program that actually works. And, oh, crap, I forgot that. Oh, I know oh, that's bad. Oh, that. And making mistakes faster is extremely important. Well, he's followed up with his registered trademark term for <laughs> BBS, yes. which yes. is it doesn't suck. <laughs> yeah, this is right on the right. website with the little it, registered mark. And I had dinner yes. with him last year when I was at release notes, and he's very proud of the fact that he registered that. Um, uh, well, talk, talk to us a little bit. We kind of jumped into the weeds a little bit on, on tech BB edit. We've talked about it in prior shows, but not very often. A lot of our listeners don't, don't program for a living. And I think the impression of BB edit for a lot of people is it's the application that's great for writing HTML, but I know you don't do a lot of HTML. You do other things with your, uh, text editors. Yeah. I, I, I write very little HTML directly anymore. Uh, I, I write I write my blog posts in Markdown and I write my reports for work uh, primarily in Markdown and occasionally uh, after converting it to LaTeX, I, I write in LaTeX if I need to tweak it a little bit, tweak the layout a little bit. And I write um, uh, my, uh, my Python programs in, in BB Edit. I write everything in BB Edit uh, pretty much when I'm working on a Mac. Uh, I, I, if I have to write a long or somewhat complicated email, it starts in BB edit. BB edit is always on when I have my Macintosh on it's, it's BB edit and the terminal. I, I, I never turn them off. For people who might not necessarily be aware, what are the advantages briefly of doing something in BB edit versus opening up just a simple text editor like ByWord or one of these these other simple text editors. What types of features does BB Edit give you access to that makes it worth using over one of these other options? BB Edit has um, uh, a very good AppleScript 
library of its own. And so you can write a lot of things that move your cursor around and jump here, jump there, type this in, type that in, uh, you know, take variables uh, and and insert them here and there. Uh, it, it also is uh, very good at incorporating and running shell scripts uh, and putting the output into uh, into the uh, into the text editing window, it uh, has a spectacular set uh, way of handling what are called text filters, and where it will take either the entire document or a selection, depending on whether you have something selected or not, and will run it through whatever script you want and replace the text with the res- with the output of that filter. And if you are, if you come out of uh, a Unix background, that's sort of the way Unix works at the command line. TextMate was very good at that as well, by the way. And uh, that was one of the reasons why I used it. And it is just, BBEdit just becomes whatever you want it to become. And it can edit anything. Now, if, if you're one of these people on, say, Sublime Text or TextMate 2, because there is a TextMate 2, and you're used to multiple cursors, you will not like, and, and you really use that, that feature a lot, you will not like BBEdit because BBEdit doesn't have multiple cursors. But it, uh, and that was one of the things I kind of lusted after when Sublime Text came out. Uh, and I just decided, well, I can live without that. I've I've lived without that uh, for the first 50 years of my life. I can go along without it from now on. And uh, that's that's worked out OK. It, it's also I would argue and we, we did we've talked about this on the show in the past, but it's also something that you can just write on. Um, if you're somebody who spends a lot of time in words, you write long reports or long, long documents uh bb edit is so rock solid it, it just never crashes it's a great you know solid program and it has support for things like regular expressions and if there's somebody out there listening to the show right now and they're a writer and they do a lot of writing that involves making changes to text and things that you know maybe they use different forms over and over again but they do need to make changes and adjustments uh if you combine bb edit and you spent you know i don't know take three or four hours to learn a little bit of regular expression um, uh, juice, you would probably be able to get your work done a lot faster. You'd probably get that time you spent on it back pretty quickly. So I, I think for people out there listening who aren't programmers, BB Edit does maybe, you know, it may scratch an itch for you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The find and replace is excellent. I mean, I think BB Edit used to be known for it, it, the excellence of its find and replace. And I think other uh, nowadays, other text editors like Sublime Text and TextMate uh, have have caught up to it, but I don't know that either one of them are quite as friendly as BB Edit is, especially if you are just learning how to do uh, regular expressions. Uh, I learned how to use how to do regular expressions on BB Edit back on um, in Mac OS seven or eight uh, back in the in the mid 90s when I before I switched to Linux and BB edit four I think was the current version and uh, BB edits manual on regular expressions is excellent it was 
Uh, I will get the story wrong, but it was written at least in part by John Gruber. Really? I didn't uh, know back that. When he, yeah, back when he worked for Bare Bones. Yeah, I know he worked for them. I didn't realize he wrote the, the regular expressions. Yeah, and I'm not, it, it, I mean, I may be being unfair to someone else who wrote a lot of it as well, but, but I know that John Gruber wrote some of it. And uh, it, it was, a, it was a, like all of the BB Edit manual, it was very well written. And that's how I, that was my introduction to regular expressions. And it's an extremely powerful thing. I, you know, I had never run into it before, didn't know anything about it and just said, oh my God, this is great. And of course, you know, during my, my Linux years, you know, I, I use that all the time when I was programming in Perl, for example. And uh, if you've never heard of it before, regular expressions is like search and replace plus plus. It just does so much more. Yeah. It's, it's a way of defining text in terms of patterns instead of specific strings uh you, you you and and that just becomes extraordinarily powerful like i had one where i had somebody gave me some analysis they had done on a bunch of documents they reviewed and they had the date strings all goofy they were using non-standard date strings that were going to not work for what i wanted to use the data for so i ran a regular expression converted it all to a proper date string and it was this was about it was probably about 300 pages of stuff it went through to fix it would have taken me hours to do that manually. Yeah. All right, guys. I'm going to have to cut you off here because Max Barkey will talk about text editors forever. And he's already got a whole show dedicated to it. I, I think not long after this one comes out. So Those are notes apps. That's different, Katie. It's all text to me. You know? It's all text. He, he's, he's got text editor shows. He's got notes app shows. Yeah, I'm sure he's got shows for anything you can do related to text. But... Have you had a regular expression show? I don't think you have. I don't think we have had a regular expression show. Ding, ding, Hard ding. To do. Don't, okay, don't guys. give him any ideas. Don't give him any now ideas. Now we are going to do one. <laughs> I'm not sure that's the best topic for a podcast, though. I'm thinking you might need a guest guest host for that show. <laughs> well, even just even just explain it. You almost That's almost a screencast thing more than that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but I get your point, Katie. I think that we're supposed to move on. I want to take a moment and thank our longtime sponsor, 1Password, for their support of Mac Power users. And did you know that Mac Power users can have both security and productivity and save up to 20% by heading over to onepassword.com slash MPU and make sure MPU is in all caps. Now, you know, I've been a 1Password user for many, many years now, and I recently switched over from the standalone version to their subscription service, and I have been really happy with it. I'm using the 1Password cloud to sync up all of my subscriptions, and I just don't have to worry about it. I know that all of my 1Password apps and services are up to date and ready to go whenever I am. Now, don't worry. You can still buy the standalone product if you want. Don't worry. It's still there. But if you want the ultimate in convenience and security, check out the 1Password plan. You can get an individual subscription for $2.99 per user per month when billed annually or the family plan for $4.99 per month. And that will add protection for your whole family and includes up to five people. With every 1Password plan, you get access to 1Password on the go. You can sign into your account, view and edit your items, add documents, manage your family, all from your web browser, no matter where you are. And of course, you get all of the award-winning 1Password apps. Your subscription includes the latest full version of 1Password apps for Mac, iOS, Android, all at no extra charge. And you know what? There's even a Windows app in beta. 
OnePassword is always up to date. That means you always get the latest versions of OnePassword with all the new features whenever they come out, and you'll never pay for upgrades again. And you can safely and securely store your important documents and sync them everywhere you go. And OnePassword will not only remember your passwords, help you create strong, unique passwords for all of your sites, and tell you when a password's been compromised, but you can also store your credit card information in OnePassword. You can store things like passwords and other memberships in OnePassword. You can store software serial numbers in OnePassword. It is my go-to for all of the information that I need to remember and keep safe and secure. So you can learn more about 1Password and the new 1Password plans by heading over to OnePassword.com. And don't forget, slash MPU to save up to 20%. And thanks again to 1Password for their continued support of the show. So what other things are you using um, your Mac for? I know uh, we were talking a little bit in the pre-show. You have gotten a little bit into Keyboard Maestro since the last time we spoke. I have gotten a lot into Keyboard Maestro. Um, and I, I owe my, my use of Keyboard Maestro to Gabe Weatherhead, uh, Mac Drifter, who uh, used to tease me for not using it. And, uh, you know, I was stuck in using AppleScript for everything, even when I had to do um, uh, GUI type scripting. And AppleScript is not fun for GUI type scripting. Uh, Keyboard Maestro, on the other hand, is a lot of fun for, for GUI type scripting. And I, uh, even though I still write in AppleScript, my AppleScripts are usually um, stuck inside a Keyboard Maestro macro. A lot of my shell scripts and Python scripts are put inside Keyboard Maestro so that I can fire them off with a uh, with a simple keyboard combination. And I uh, last year, uh, I switched from using Text Expander for my text expandery kind of things, my snippety kind of things, to Keyboard Maestro. And it's worked out well. I, I would not, you know, if you are a person who uses Text Expander a lot and you really like your snippets and you make a lot of snippets, uh, I don't think moving to Keyboard Maestro is necessarily a great idea. But if you're like me and you have your snippets and then you just fire them off and you don't make new ones very often, uh, Keyboard Maestro works pretty well. Now, can you do complicated stuff like fill-in snippets or optional snippets or things like that with Keyboard Maestro? Oh, God. Oh, yes. It's it's a little different and it's a little clunkier, I think, than um, than uh, Text Expander in that in Text Expander, when you have a fill-in thing, um, you kind of see your fill-ins within the context of the entire snippet, if I'm remembering right. Um, in Keyboard Maestro, you do have a lot of, you, you have interactive stuff, um, interactive abilities, but it's kind of, uh, you know, throw a window up on the screen and ask for certain input and then go ahead and, and, and then, you know, the window gets dismissed when the guy hits, when the user hits the OK button, and then you go ahead and fill in all of that and, and pop out your text with certain variables filled in. Not quite as smooth as um, as with Text Expander. I really do think that there's there's an advantage if you do a lot of the fill in stuff or um, uh, where you use pop up menus for selections. Uh, Text Expander is still definitely better for those things than Keyboard Maestro. 
But I was fine. I had found myself, you know, for I've been using Keyboard Maestro now for a few years and I was using them both uh, simultaneously. And I had kind of always thought, eh, these these two have so much overlap. And uh, I think one of them ought to go. And I, I decided that it was Text Expander that should go rather than Keyboard Maestro. Keyboard Maestro, although not as smooth, and not as user friendly as uh, as Text Expander uh, is, I think, more powerful. It does it does more things. It allows you to do more things. Well, it's just a it's a much bigger tool set. Um, it is so. It is so. So tell us some of the things you're doing with uh, with Keyboard Maestro. Oh gosh. Well, let me let me bring up <laughs> let me bring it up and see what I can see here. I, I have. You know, all of the things that I have done for many years um, for like um, putting a link in to the current. So I'm let's say I'm writing a blog post and I need a link to the uh, page that is currently showing in Safari. And uh, I, I have a I have a couple of different uh, keystrokes that uh, that will work that and that will do that for me that I think are really nice because they do not take me out of the flow of my writing. They don't force me to go over to, to um, Safari, uh, select the URL, copy it, then come back into BB Edit. I am I stay within BB Edit and my keyboard maestro macro, itself queries uh, Safari and gets the front, the URL of the front uh, page, uh, front tab, and then puts it together into into a link in whatever it is that I'm writing. And I've got several of those, actually, depending on whether I'm writing a blog post or just, uh, in which case I would want kind of a, a markdown. Uh, sort of formatted uh, link, or uh, if I'm uh, on Twitter or texting with my wife or my kids, and I want to show send them a link to something, I have I have a uh, a macro in Keyboard Maestro called furl uh, f u r l, which stands for front URL. I have had that in various forms since I was using Quicksilver. Um, so way, way back, I've had this for like a decade almost. Uh, and, and it just, I type in uh, semicolon F-U-R-L and boom, in comes the uh, the front URL of what's in Safari. And gosh, I use that. I use that every day. So you use it like when sending out a text to somebody and say, go check this out. Go look at this. Yeah. So rather than having to go into the website or rather than going to Safari, hit command L to select the link, command C to copy it and back to your thing. You just have keyboard maestro go into Safari, grab the link and then drop it into wherever you're working. Yeah. I don't, I don't even think about copying links, uh, copying URLs anymore, at least not when I'm on the Mac because it's always available to me, no matter where I am. If I'm sending an email message, uh, because I've been I've been writing something, or I've, you know I've been studying something, and there's a uh, there's a page on my uh, in Safari that I've been looking at, 
And okay, I need to write a, an email to somebody and I don't think, I don't have to remember, oh, I need to copy that before I go over to mail. No, I don't do that. I just, oh yeah, there it is. Boom. Uh, semicolon F-U-R-L. There it is. Pops right in. It's like, I always feel like the uh, the holy trinity of you, graphical automation apps on the Mac, it starts with Text Expander. It's the easiest one to get going on. Um, it's very, you know, you it it's easy to understand how it works and it, it, you can immediately see a difference in your life once you start using it. Then the next step up is Hazel, which Hazel is a little broader. It solves a different problem, but it gives you power. And then I think the third step is Keyboard Maestro. Once you get past, you know, Text Expander, Hazel, you get yourself Keyboard Maestro because it's so broad. I mean, I, I used to describe Keyboard Maestro as a way to kind of avoid learning Apple Script because it does so much that Apple Script does, but it does also more than Apple Script. It it looks, you know, it detects the status of whether something's plugged into your USB port. I mean, it just it gives you a real big palette of colors to paint with when you're going to start doing some automation. The most powerful thing that Keyboard Maestro does for me, and 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 it's the thing that almost can't can't be done in any other uh, in any other program, any other macro creating or scripting a program is that you can tell it to click on an area based on what the area looks like. There is a command in there where, uh, let me just, let me, let me find it here. Uh, I can't remember what it's called. Sorry. Edit this out. Don't, don't have any fumbling around here. Yeah, we do that heavily. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Um, so, let's see. Well, it's always had the ability to say, put the mouse at the following coordinates and click. Oh, yeah. But see, click at found, click at found image is, is the command, is the action in, in keyboard maestro parlance. Click at found image is the most spectacular and powerful thing that Keyboard Maestro does because you don't have to worry about where your window is on the screen. You don't have to worry about where that image is within a window even because, you know, windows uh, can be resized and it ends up and things sometimes shift. User interface elements can shift around within a window. But if you have, um, and, and you ought to have, a unique image that defines a particular button or an area that needs to be clicked, uh, this is just perfect. You just take a little screenshot of that area and paste it in to this click at found image action and then tell Keyboard Maestro, oh, I want you to click at the center of it, or I want you to click 10 pixels down and to the right of the upper left corner of it, or you know, whatever. It's, it's, it's very powerful. And that just saves your bacon on, on automating things so many times because you'll be automating and everything. Oh, it's uh, so many things are just, you know, choose this menu, click the, do this keyboard combination, type some stuff, blah, blah, blah. But then you hit this spot where, oh no, I need to click in this area. It's not a, it's not really a button. It doesn't have a name. It doesn't, oh, oh, how am I going to do this? Well, this is how you do it. Click at found image. Extremely powerful. And that's what the, you know, you get to what we call brute force automation, where there sometimes there isn't a clever way to do it. There isn't a way to script it to 
to run commands for you, but you have to just fool a computer to think a human is doing something like finding something on a screen and clicking on it. And you're right. Doing that before was always super hard. You had to assume that the window opened in exactly the same location every time that if it was something on a web form that the web page hadn't scrolled at all. It's, a, it's just really easy for those scripts to go wrong, which is why I almost never do them. Yep. So this, this will help. Yeah, no, it, it, it is. It, it is so nice. And it's the, it's the thing that has, it's the magic of keyboard maestro is that one command. I mean, it does wonderful things. It does lots of wonderful things. It has lots of power. It, but that one command is the one that, I don't know if anybody else has it. You also switched to Apple Mail. Yeah, I switched back to Apple Mail after uh, a, whenever it was, three years ago, maybe, or so, uh, Apple Mail stopped working for me. Uh, I forget which, I forget which version of um, OS X uh, came out with mail that didn't work well with, with Gmail. And because I had been using Apple Mail and despite everyone, all the cool people saying, oh, Apple Mail sucks, you should be using something else. I Apple Mail was always fine with me. I, I, I'm not I'm not the kind of person who sends out hundreds of emails a day or even dozens of emails a day. So it was always fine. And the organization was a little clunky, but it was yeah, whatever. I, I, I lived with it until it wouldn't retrieve or send my mail. That seems kind of like a critical flaw. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's kind of kind of two essential things that an email client has to do. One of them is retrieve and the other one is send. And it wasn't doing either one of them for me. And and it wasn't, I mean, no doubt part of that had to do with the fact that Gmail is not true IMAP. It's, you know, it's something else. But, um, you know, Apple, I thought, had a responsibility. After all, how many, how many Apple Mail users are using are Gmail users? It's it's got to be an enormous number, and it just didn't. And I I had a particularly bad case of it, but it was it was well known that Apple Mail was not working well with Gmail, and so I went to with MailMate, which I liked a lot, and uh, still like a lot, but. You know, it is always, if you can, it's always easier to go with Apple's solution. And Apple has, uh, and Apple's plugins in particular, like I use, uh, what's it, MailHub, I think, um, is is a really nice, uh, really nice for organizing mail. And of course, that only works within Apple Mail. MailMate itself has a nice mail organization scheme where you file mail by mail organization. I'm talking about filing mail in folders, which a lot of people don't do. A lot of people just use search for that sort of thing. And I am jealous of those people who can do that. I cannot do that. Uh, Just for my job, I need to be able to have all of my emails, all of my correspondence for a particular project available in one location so that I can essentially turn them all into one PDF and send it out during say discovery process. Uh, if I'm, if I'm working on a job as an expert witness and I'm going to be deposed on it or something like that, uh, I have to be able to cough up my file, my correspondence file and search doesn't let you do that. 
you you really need to have things organized. And I organize my correspondence, my email correspondence in folders according to every project that I work on. And when the time comes when I have to cough up my file, uh, that's how I, that's what I do. I go in to that folder and I tell it to print all the emails. And then I end up, you know, of course, interrupting the print process and telling it, no, 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 print it to a PDF. And that's what I send off. And so MailHub uh, has uh, an exceptionally good uh, way of figuring out where you probably want to file your mail. And it's just, it, it, it's almost never wrong. It often doesn't have a guess, especially when I'm just starting on a project and I don't have any a corpus for it to learn from yet. But once it learns, uh, once it gets a few emails to learn from, it's it's very good. And not only does it, so if I'm, if I write a reply to an email, so there's an email in my inbox, I need to reply to it. I write it. I hit uh, a button in MailHub that says, uh, it's basically send and archive. So I don't, I don't end up with my mail in my sent folder anymore. My mail ends up going into the folder associated with that project. And furthermore, the email that I am replying to gets filed there too. And so it gets out of my inbox and goes in the right spot along with my reply. One command, one, one click. And that, that's wonderful. It really is. I think MailHub, it's a plug-in for Apple Mail. So if you're using Apple Mail, you can get it. Um, it's probably the best solution if you're in Dr. Drang's position where you need to put every email into a separate folder, which we're generally against because it's just so easy to make errors with that stuff. It is. And, and I wish I didn't have to do it. I, I, I wish I could just have a single, uh, you know, archive and, and do searches, but I, I'm because of what I do for a living, I can't do that. Well, still to this day, when we get complaints from listeners about Apple Mail, it seems to me most of the time they are Gmail users. I still think Gmail is not a, a really great a friend of Apple Mail. So I'm, I'm glad to hear you're able to make it work. Well, <laughs> um, I'm using Fastmail now too. So I have uh, my... My work email still goes through like a whatever Gmail, Google Docs for companies or whatever the hell they're, they're calling it nowadays. Um, so it ends up going to to Gmail, uh, but it gets moved from Gmail over to my Fastmail account immediately, and so it's and so mail is interfacing with Fastmail. And Fastmail is a is a really well regarded IMAP company. So if you want to get your server through fast mail that's a way to go it is and uh and so i uh, and i end up sending all of my mail to fast mail now both my my personal email like my true personal email not the snowman email but the snowman email my personal email and my work email all goes into fast mail and gets sorted out there and it works out really well I mean, Gmail has a lot of really interesting interventions going on, and they're always trying to push the envelope. And people ask me why I don't use it much. And to me, I just like the portability of a traditional IMAP account. It allows me to use any client I want. And Gmail really doesn't. I mean, it, it just doesn't work that well with a lot of these clients. Yeah, I think, and I think 
both you and and Merlin Mann have said something that's very wise, which is that if you're going to use Gmail, use it through the web interface because that's really where it shines. And I don't like using it through the. I did for many years. Well, I don't, two or three years, uh, I used Gmail um, back when I was using Pop instead of IMAP. Uh, on one of my computers, which I, you know, the computer I did not want my my email to be downloaded to, uh, I would I would go look at it through the Gmail web interface, and it was okay, but. It's a web interface, and I guess I'm old-fashioned. I prefer app interfaces. I think they really are smoother. Despite web interfaces being much better than they used to be, uh, I, I think they still are not, not as good as a native app. Yeah, but, but if you're a Gmail user, I, I honestly, if I was using Gmail, I'd be using it in the web because that's where it's meant to exist. I would have the Chrome browser, and I would be using Gmail on in Chrome because I think that's where you're going to get the best experience. That's something that that Google controls, you know, top to bottom. Absolutely, yeah, that's exactly right. And I dis I dislike Chrome intensely uh, for reasons I can't quite put my finger on, but there's just something wrong about it whenever I use it, and I do use it occasionally because I think. Oh, you know, this, whatever, it's, this website is not working well with, with Safari. Maybe that's a problem. Maybe it, uh, I need Chrome for it and I'll try it out. And there, I don't know what it is about it, but something I just, I could not use it as my regular web browser. I think that, um, there's a lot of people that like it. it it's, um, especially a lot of people that use a lot of Google services. If you, you know, Google calendar, Gmail, et cetera, I think it's a better experience, but but I feel like Apple's Safari team spends a lot more time optimizing the Safari browser for Apple hardware and the operating system. So I think you get better battery. I mean, the, the general experience is you get better battery life using Safari over Chrome. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by the brand new Omni Outliner 5. Check out Omni Outliner 5 Pro and Omni Outliner 5 Essentials at omnigroup.com slash omnioutliner. I'm super happy to announce that the Omni Group has released a brand new version of its award-winning Outliner program, Omni Outliner. This newest version adds a bunch of new features like outline filtering, so you can have it filter out to just rows that contain certain words or phrases or states that you request. The new version also includes password protection, so if you've got sensitive information in your Omni Outline, you can easily encrypt it. They also added a whole new keyboard shortcut set system, so you can define each and every menu bar option and outline command so you feel at home with the way you want to use Omni Outliner. Because you can save them as sets, you can even save these keyboard shortcut sets with your friends. Visually, Omni Outliner got some nice improvements as well. They've got this new distraction-free writing mode, so when you go to full screen, it removes all the elements of the user interface and just gives you your outline. I've been working in that now for about a month and I really like it. Uh, they also have a new uh, typewriter mode. So you can always keep the cursor and the line you're working on in the generally the center of the screen. This is a really nice feature for an outliner because with an outliner, you're always looking at the stuff above and below where you're working. And now I've just turned this on permanently. They've got a bunch of new built-in themes and templates. It's just a really nice improvement to an application that a lot of us already loved. And best of all, they've made a way to bring Omni Outliner to even more people. Omni Outliner Pro has a significant price cut, so you can get into the application for a lot less than you used to. And if you want something even more basic, you can get the 
Omni Outliner Essentials Edition. That one doesn't include as much customization and some of the other features I mentioned earlier, but it is a basic version of Omni Outliner with all of that outstanding outlining juice in it for just $10. It's $10 on the Mac, $5 on iOS. So for a total of $15, you could get yourself set up with Omni Outliner Essentials on both the Mac and iOS. Having a world-class outliner on both platforms for just $15 is pretty awesome. So to learn more, go over to the omnigroup.com slash omnioutliner and check it out. If you look around, you'll even be able to find some videos made by some goofy guy they hired showing off the new features. Thanks, Omni Group, for sponsoring the Mac Power Users. One of the big changes that has happened is you now have an iPad in your life. <gasps> I know. Yeah. Now, please don't tell me you're going to be one of these iPad people like Max. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but Shall I speak with an Italian accent? Yes. Um, but um, uh, how's it working for you? Have you adopted an iPad lifestyle? Has it found a place in your, your workflow? What's, what's working for you and what's not? I absolutely have not adapted, uh, adopted an iPad lifestyle uh, yet, but I've had an iPad now since about uh, August or September of 2016. And I haven't written much about it because I'm still not, sh I'm still finding my way in it, which seems goofy. It's been six months. Uh, why am I still finding my way about it? Well, part of it is because I've been really busy at work and I haven't been able to dig in. Uh, with the iPad, but I'm doing, I'm using it more and more. I have written, uh, I've written a few blog posts and posted them using it. Uh, I am, you know, learning certainly the, the okay, I'll, I, I will do the cliche, the non-productive stuff where it's just consumption. Yeah. I, I use the iPad and it's wonderful for that. It is, uh, you know, I, I have, obviously I have, a, it's a retina screen. It's my, apart from my iPhone, it's my only retina screen. My obvious, my, my old MacBook Air does not have a retina screen. And my iMac at work is uh, like a 2012 iMac. So it also doesn't have a retina screen. So when I get a chance to, you know, I, I want to just look at some web pages or do some research or something like that. Um, yeah, I, I, I turn to the iPad because it looks nice. And if I'm not trying to do anything particularly com uh, complicated, it works just fine. Now, with the pencil, and I got a pencil, uh, I bought a pencil with it. I lost the pencil two weeks later at a hotel. <laughs> and so now I have another pencil. <laughs> And the very nice salesman at the Apple store gave me a $10 discount on my replacement pencil. Uh, and I, and I have, oh, and here's, here's the great thing. I, st I have the nib, uh, you know, the replacement uh, point for the original one, cause that was still in the box. So I have two replacement points for my pencil. I'm not, I'm not sure when I'm going to actually wear this uh, tip down, but in case I ever do, I've got two replacements for it. Uh, and I, I have found, uh, I'm starting to take notes on my iPad. Uh, not all the time. Certainly if I'm doing a field inspection and I'm outside, uh, I don't feel comfortable yet using my iPad for that. But if I'm in, uh, in the lab doing, and, and things don't seem very dangerous, it doesn't seem like I'm likely to knock it down or knock it off a table or, 
get it wet with rain or whatever. Um, I'm starting to use the the iPad for note taking, and it's wonderful for that, uh, especially with the pencil because I don't want to type my notes. I want to write them, handwrite them the way I handwrite my uh, my paper notes. And what makes it nice, uh, of course, is that I can incorporate photos into into my notes and I can, you know, take a quick picture of whatever it is that I'm inspecting and then annotate it, which is much nicer than trying to make a sketch and or describe it entirely in words. That works out really well. That's usually not my only photo of the thing. I will take photos with a camera as well. But it's really nice to be able to take a picture of something and mark it up and say, this is what this is what I'm seeing here. I'm seeing this over on this side and I'm seeing this over on this other side. And uh, that that's something that I simply cannot do on paper. And so I do that as much as I can. So you're taking the picture with with the camera lens in the iPad. So you're just taking the picture on device. Exactly. And what app are you using to do your annotation in? I am using, uh, so I'm using GoodNotes for these notes, and I like GoodNotes. I tried Notability. I, I, I think I bought Notability on my phone quite a while ago, and it's nice because of the, uh, the thing where you can record uh, sound uh, as you're taking your notes. So that's, that's a very nice feature. But I find GoodNotes to work just better for me with what I do. And, and I, if I were a student, Notability might be a better choice, you know, sitting in a lecture hall and being able to sort of replay the audio as, you know, what was I, what was I listening to when I wrote this note, that, that sort of thing. I think that's, that's very, that's wonderful. Um, but I don't do that. And GoodNotes for me works out much better. GoodNotes also has a feature that I have not used as much as I thought I would. Uh, it recognizes handwriting amazingly well. And so uh, it doesn't turn your handwriting into text. Oh, you can do that, but that's kind of, that, that's a little on the clunky side, but you can search. So if you have a multi-page uh, notebook and you want to find the word bolt, you can find where the word bolt is everywhere. And it it's, I have decent handwriting, not great handwriting. And it is quite good, quite accurate in its handwriting recognition. Yeah, I had opportunity recently to use GoodNotes after I hadn't used it for about a year. And I was really impressed at the the, the updates they'd made in the app. The, uh, the flow of the pencil is way smoother than it used to be. So it, it really feels more like a writing experience now. One of the things I used to not like about it was to turn text into to turn handwriting into text, you would circle the text. And um, it was just kind of really goofy the way it would work. And, and sometimes the circle would stick and sometimes it wouldn't. They've completely rewritten that that section. I mean, you still circle it, but it gives you like a little check mark to confirm that you are selecting this and you're not just drying a circle around something. Mm-hmm. And um, I just feel like that they've, that app has, they've ironed out all the rough edges and it's, it's very uh, interesting. If, if you're somebody who likes to write down on your iPad, this is something you should definitely be looking into. Yeah. And, and you know, and my notes for work are always this uh, mixture of text and sketches. 
And and I, there's just no way for me to get around that. I'm never going to be able to just sit down and type notes uh, as I'm doing the kind of work that I do. V- visual uh, v- visual communication is extremely important to me, which is why uh, and, and uh, GoodNotes also has the ability to um, tidy up your drawings, so you can. Uh, click a little icon in the upper on the on the upper toolbar and it will then make your square if something looks like a square that you've scribbled out they will it will turn it into a nice square or a rectangle and similarly with ovals and circles and triangles and straight lines straight lines are very important uh, it's very smooth and natural in the ability to zoom in and zoom out with the pinch controls um it has uh It has a feature that's not, it's erasing is not quite as good as uh, Linear's erasing, which I think is just, was the greatest idea in the world. I don't know if you've used that. I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing it right, but it's, uh, it's from uh, Craig Hockenberry at, uh, oh, what, what's, uh, what's the name of that company? Um, They do Twitter, Twitterific. I'm I'm drawing a blank. Icon factory. Yes, yes. Uh, I kept I kept seeing their, their their icon, which looks like a factory, and I couldn't come up with the word icon factory. <laughs> anyway, uh, Linear, if you've used it, uh, you you uh, erase with your finger. So you draw with a pencil and you erase with your finger. Great idea. Yeah. Which is brilliant because that's how I work on a whiteboard. And uh, and I think a lot of people do that on a white. When I have to just erase a little bit on a whiteboard, that's what I, you know. I've written a word wrong, or you know, whatever uh, a letter has gone wrong. I just wipe it out with my finger. That's why my fingers are always blue. Uh, so GoodNotes doesn't do that, but it does do. Uh, it's maybe one step less than that, which is that you can set the eraser up to uh, by default spring back to whatever tool you had before after you're done with a single erase. So if you're writing and you make a mistake in your in your writing, you click on the eraser tool, rub around to erase whatever it is that you uh, need to erase. When you lift the pencil back up, and then put it back down again, it's back to being the pencil or the pen. What about just scratching out? Because I use the scratch out mode in um, GoodNotes where you just scratch out the word and it, it erases it. I have not done that. Uh, and it's maybe it's because, I don't know. I I feel like that, I don't know. I, I, I usually don't write my words wrong. I usually uh, write an individual letter wrong. And I'm not sure I have good enough control uh, to to go and do the scratch out and have that work, I should try it though. Try it; it's it's pretty clever to see it work. To see if it works, is there a setting that does that? I can't remember. I no, it, it's turned on by default. You default. Okay. Out. There's a there's a bunch of little tricks in that app. Like if you've got it in wrist mode, another trick that people don't realize is that it, you can scroll up on the left side of the screen. You can like put your thumb on the left side of the screen, so you can literally just move the paper up while you're writing. And just move the current line so you don't have to move your hand down the screen, which is very helpful. But it, it doesn't sound to me like you're using it to write out long bits of text. You're you're more you're annotating photos. It's annotating photos and sketches and things like that. I mean, you know, every once in a while I'll have uh, I will have like a page of text 
but that's it's more like bullet points and things like that. It's not really true uh, narrative kind of text. But but it is interesting to me that that is the workflow that you uh, you like the most, or one of the, one of your favorite workflows on the iPad, because it's something that that is uniquely iPad. You know, it doesn't really make sense to do something like that on a um, you know on another device. Well, in fact, it's uniquely iPad Pro because I would. Um because it's because of the pencil uh i don't think i didn't i didn't use other styluses uh, obviously because i didn't have an ipad before but i find it hard to believe that other styluses will work as well as the pencil just because the pencil is built by apple and they do all their internal stuff to make it work well that, that, so here's a question for you. Let's set aside things that work really well because it's an iPad. And let's just talk about things that you would traditionally do on your Mac. And how, to what extent are you trying to do those things on your iPad and, and what's working and what's not in that regard? Well, the, the big thing that I am trying to work out, and I, I am nearly there, is uh, to be able to write my programs and test my, my programs, which would all be... the programs. That's, that's too, that's too uh, grand a word. These are scripts, but write my Python scripts uh, that I do for work. So they are analytical scripts. It's, it's doing statistics or, uh, or, or some stress analysis or something like that, uh, that I write in Python. And I have been using um, a program called Jupyter, J-U-P-Y-T-E-R, which is the, um, carry on from ipython ipython was uh, stood for interactive python and it's a way of um well interactively writing in python jupiter is a little bit broader you can use you can use other languages with it uh, and so i have been using jupiter uh, quite a bit lately and what i'm trying and you can't run jupiter natively on the ipad so what i what I have been trying to set up, and I'm about there, I think, is a workflow in which I would have the screen split, and I am uh, in prompt on in half of the screen, and let's say editorial in the other half. A any text editor would be fine. Uh, I've been thinking about uh, look. I've been thinking about looking into text text tastic excuse me, for programming. Uh, I haven't done it yet, but that, that may be in the offing. Anyway, so I'm, I am using prompt. I log into my iMac at work and I get a Jupyter session going and I write my program in editorial off on the other half. And then I switch over when, when I get to a certain stage and I need to do some testing, I switch over to the um, to prompt into into Jupiter, and I say, okay, well, load this program in, and let's start exploring what the results are. And I do some of that, and then okay, well, now uh, I need to I need to fix this. I need to fix this. Go back and forth between the two, um, keeping the the two. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't done it enough to know whether half and half is right or that whatever is it two thirds one third, so, you know, something like that. Uh, I'm still not sure exactly what the best arrangement of the of the two sides is, but uh, that's sort of my goal is to be able to do that. And if I can do that, then I don't need to have I, I don't need to use my MacBook Air so much. 
uh, with a with a decent keyboard, and I have a Magic Keyboard that I sync with my iPad. Um, with a decent keyboard and those two programs running side by side, I can get a lot done. And it's it's similar to the workflow that I would have on my on the iMac itself, other than the screen is much smaller. Yeah, it's, you know, I just feel like Apple's so close, but the, at the same time, they just aren't giving the the iPad the software it deserves to make stuff like that happen. Why does that have to be so hard? Yeah, I, you know, I one of the things that that I think Apple doesn't understand is that automation doesn't get in the way of people who don't know automation. It is it it's not a complication. Like, you know, my wife has um the iPad Air, the second one or the third one or whatever, the one of the more recent ones. And um I don't think she knows about split screen. It never comes up. I think she she had an iPad two for several years. And it's been essentially the perfect computer for her. She see the, the the one thing at a time works very well for her. She like because that's what she does. And I don't, I, I I really don't think she knows split screen. I certainly haven't told her because I think all it would do was mess her up, and she would complain to me about it. Um. So it, so it's and I think automation is the same way. I think split screen was done very well. It's it's almost impossible to inadvertently bring up a split screen. I think it's it's a very intentional sort of thing that you have to do. And automation is even more intentional. It's all it's hidden. It's you know people use Macs for years and years and years without knowing that Apple script is sitting there in the background. And uh, you know since since the Mac OS 10 days started which is now you know 17 years ago uh Underneath uh, the Mac was this incredibly powerful Unix subsystem, uh, well, system, uh, uh, sitting there where you could do all sorts of things, uh, scripting-wise and automation-wise. Yeah, most people used used their Macs, never knew it was there. It didn't get in their way. And I think um, Apple could do that on the iPad, and it wouldn't get in people's way. And I think using... Um, XURL schemes and uh, workflow is all very nice, but it's it's not like having something that Apple itself made and integrated with the system. Yeah, it really is a question what the future of automation is for iOS devices, and and the the, the reason why it's such a question is because uh, Apple hasn't been clear about what it thinks it should be, or whether even it thinks automation should exist. Yeah. And and I think they are just, they are deathly afraid of making it, making the, the, the iPad and the iPhone, and of course what they care about most is the phone. Um, they're deathly afraid of making it complicated. And, uh, you know, it's, it's already gotten complicated. You know, there are so many gestures and swipes and flip, Flick this way, flick that way. That are kind of hidden. These are these are very different from the from that first iPhone. Um, all of the stuff with notification center and where the control panel is, and all, and all of that stuff that is 
not obvious to anybody. You have to know that it's there or, or you, you wouldn't use it. Uh, you don't have to use it typically. That's the, that's the saving grace of it. But so much of what's powerful in the iPhone and, and iOS in general is hidden now. I don't understand why they don't see that better inter-app, uh, inter-app communication could be the same and scripting could be the same way. Uh, it doesn't have to confuse anybody because it's generally hidden. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by Eero. These days, everything in our home requires an internet connection, speakers, thermostat, light bulbs, door locks, security cameras, and everything in between. And we are increasingly looking at streaming services like Netflix, Hulu, Spotify for our home entertainment. And Wi-Fi is the foundation of it. We are totally dependent on it. But the problem is Wi-Fi is broken. Our connections can be inconsistent. They're slow and unresponsive. And to get the best possible connection today, you need a distributed system that can provide you with connection all over your home. Now, this has previously been very expensive to do, but not anymore. With Eero, you can install an enterprise-grade Wi-Fi system in your home in just a few minutes. Now, this isn't one of those Wi-Fi extenders. I've tried those. They're a pain. Each Eero has two radios inside, keeping your connection fast and everything in sync in one simple network name. You download the Eero app to your iOS or Android device, and it will walk you through each step of the process. It's quick, easy, and painless. The Eero app lets you manage your network from the palm of your hand so you know how many devices are connected at any given point and the speed of the internet in your home that you're actually getting for your service provider. I installed an Eero in my home a couple of months ago, and it solved Wi-Fi problems I didn't even know I had. All of my Internet of Things devices are now rock solid in their connection, and I can browse effortlessly anywhere in my home and even from the backyard. I loved my Eero so much, I actually got one and installed it in my parents' home, so I never have to worry about their Wi-Fi connection again. The average U.S. home can easily be covered by two to three Eros, so the three-pack is a great starting point. But if you live in a large space and you need more, you can add up to 10 total. And because of their 30-day money-back guarantee, you can always return one of the Eros if you end up not needing them. Eero is the original whole home Wi-Fi system, and to celebrate its first birthday, the price has been permanently lowered. So if you've been waiting, there's never been a better time to buy. You can now get an Eero 3-pack for $3.99, which is $100 off the normal price, or a 2-pack for $2.99, which is $50 off. You can get Eero at this lower price right now from Eero.com, Best Buy, or even Amazon. So thanks so much to Eero for supporting the show and all of Relay FM. Let's get back to writing a little bit, though. You you do a lot of writing, Katie. I'm sorry. Um, I know. I'm just laughing but, at you. But the uh, but I was thinking about this. You're an iPad. You do have an iPad. You've got an Apple keyboard with it, and I know you like BB Edit on your Mac. Um, do you write reports and do that kind of stuff on the iPad at all, or is that just a Mac thing for you? I have not yet written a report on my iPad, and when I when I do that, that will be the indication. That things have have really gotten to a to a great state. I um, so much of my report writing is um, is bound up in some scripting stuff, things that I've done in BB Edit that I would have to reproduce in say editorial, and I just haven't gotten around to doing it yet. Uh, and part of it is. Uh, my, my reports for work usually include several photographs and maybe a graph or two 
and a table or two or something like that. And I have over the years, because this is such a big part of my report writing workflow, I have written scripts um, within BB Edit that do a lot of that grunt work for me about putting a you know putting a reference to a photo in and, and all that sort of stuff that's necessary both in both in Markdown and uh, and in LaTeX uh, after I've changed it to that. So it. Uh, I would have to redo a lot of things uh, in, say, editorial or whatever it is that I end up choosing. Uh, One writer, I think, is also another good choice. I think it has JavaScript, um, has a JavaScript automation system within it. Uh, It's uh, so far the 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 amount of work that I would need to do to do that has been kind of to get, to get that kind of automation going and to make those things work on the iPad has been a barrier that I just haven't leapt over. Uh, it, it's um, I need to do it. I want to do it, but you know, when the report needs to be written, the client needs it today <laughs> and, uh, and I don't have time to be screwing around writing a script to help me write the report. I just need to write the report. And so, and of course, when I'm at work, it would be silly to try to write on an iPad because I have an iMac with a 27-inch screen and I can see my my charts in one window and my and photographs in another window and my text edit is being edited in another and all of them are laid out really well and I can see everything at once. And... I can flip back and forth between the two because uh, between two, three, four, however many apps I need to use. And, you know, the other thing is I've got, I've got years of, of um, expertise. Well, muscle memory, everything built into doing that, even though, you know, I have changed my scripts over the years, tweaking them here and there. And I, you know, it's not uncommon for me to take a script that I wrote you know, 10 years ago and, you know, I should be doing this a little bit better. Oh, here, I'll do it this way now and, and change it around. But fundamentally, I've been writing things the same way for oh, since the late 80s. And um, so we're getting close to 30 years now. And it's really hard to break that off and and try to do it a different way. And I would argue that just like a tool like BB Edit is not does not exist on the iPad at this point, and I don't know that it could. So you've got a lot going against you. But I was curious that to the extent you could, like a lot of the stuff I do is not script heavy. A lot of the just text writing I do, and and Ulysses has really taken off for me lately. Where I was on a plane the other day for four hours, and I really didn't have to worry about what I was going to plan for working on the plane because if i just open up ulysses between my day job and my night job there's always words that need to be written somewhere so i can just do that in that one application and it works fine whether i'm on ipad or mac yeah i mean if if i were more certainly i I write a lot of words but my words are tend to be in my reports so tied to images and tables that if I had to write all my tables out by hand, or if I had to put the links in by hand of all of 
my uh, photograph photo references and things like that. That's that would that would be awful for me. It, what it would do is it's not that it's that much typing, but it takes me out of my thinking. I, I don't want to think about how to put a reference into a photo and then make sure that the photo appears at the end of the report in this location with this caption. I want to just do it. And because I've been doing it almost without thinking for so many years now, because I have these automation tools built up on the Mac, I, I, I am loathe to give that up. Now, with, uh, with blog posts... And I have written blog posts on my on my iPad. It's a little bit easier, a little less critical, um, little uh, not nearly as many images. And so I've done that, and I and I should do more of it. Um, w- when I've done it, it's uh, it's been because I've been out on a business trip, and I deliberately did not bring my MacBook Air with me. I only brought the iPad, and I said, "Well, I need to write a post about." X, Y, or Z. And well, okay, here I am. I have an iPad and I have a keyboard. Let's, let's go to it. And that's, and it's worked. Are you doing that in editorial or what's your, I've done, I've done it in editorial. And, um, because I have, of course, my own homemade blogging system, a static blogging system, I would use, uh, so I, you know, I write it in editorial. It saves it in uh, in Dropbox in a particular location, which is where all of my markdown file, all the markdown files for my uh, for my blog are. And then I would open up Prompt on the iPad and tell it to you know build the site, and it would do it. And it's, <laughs> it's hey, nice. Doctor Drang does not go to something off the shelf ever. I didn't, don't you have like your own weather app at this point that you've made just for your own weather uh, predictions? I, I did that a while ago. Uh, it's not a, to call it an app is, is a way, website, right? It's a, it's a web page. Yeah. But, but it, um, and, and I realized of course it looks horrible on an iPad because I, because I made it for, for the iPhone. Um, but yeah, it goes, it, it goes to um, a weather underground grabs the data and formats that nicely and also gets a, uh, a satellite map. Not a, I'm sorry, not a satellite, a radar map of, of, well, it depends. So I have one, <laughs> I have one for home. So it just always goes to, to Naperville and shows me, you know, what's going on in Naperville. I have one for where my daughter lives, which is Minneapolis. So it goes to Minneapolis. And I have and I have another page that goes to wherever I am. And that's a little bit more complicated because, of course, the JavaScript inside this app has to uh, do some queries about uh, it has to query the, the GPS to figure out where I am and then go off and get that information from Weather Underground. But it does it. And it's it's nice. Uh, you know, Apple has improved its weather app a lot. It shows a lot more than it used to. Uh, I did this uh, to some extent because Apple's weather app was so elementary and it didn't tell me what I needed to know. Um, weather line is nice. There's, I mean, weather apps are, there are so many great weather apps uh, on there, uh, but I still have mine. I, I still occasionally bring it out because I really want to see that radar. Um, and, and, and it's, it's relatively fast. Okay. Last two questions. We're using an iPad now for a while. 
What has uh, brought you the most frustration and what has brought you the most delight? The frustration is, is this problem of getting from A to B when A is in one app and B is in another app. Forget about automation. Just, I, I do, I still don't quite understand always uh, how to attach something to an email message. Um, I mean, it really depends on what I'm trying to attach, but a lot of times, oh, you want to be in the app that, uh, that has the attachment. But uh, that seems unnatural to me when I, when I think, oh, I want an email something. I, my first thought is, oh, well, I will go, I'll open up mail. No, that's wrong. And God help you if you have to attach several things. And I think, David, you have ranted about this in the past as well. Both of you probably just a have. few times. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's oh my god, what <sighs> you know? And we have, excuse me, we have iCloud Drive now. Why it shouldn't be that hard? So that is that's the biggest frustration. Um, the delight really comes uh, from the pencil. I don't know that I would have had a lot of delight with the iPad. I probably would have found something else to be delighted with if I'd had an earlier iPad. Um, but you know, when I, when I have had to use my wife's on occasion, eh, I wasn't all that thrilled with it, but the pencil and being able to draw, and I'm not an artist, but I, drawing is an important part of my workaday life. And it kind of turns into not just my workaday life, but it, it, that the fact that I do that all the time when I'm at work means I end up doing that when I'm not at work. And I like to, you know, have a photograph and draw something goofy on it and send to somebody. And it's just... It, that's something you cannot do on a Mac. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yes, of course you can, you can draw around with a little puck or whatever, uh, or you know, dragging along on the, on the, on the trackpad, but it's not direct. And that is of course the magic of iOS in general is that you are moving your finger or in this case, the pencil on the thing itself instead of by remote operating something by remote control. And uh, as David said, you know, how how wonderfully well, because I didn't see earlier versions of GoodNotes. So to me, I'm only seeing the really good version of GoodNotes and the the flow of the pencil is just spectacular. And it's the same in Notes and it's the same in uh, Linear um, and, and in other note-taking apps. I guess... Um, uh, Federico and and Fraser Spears uh, had a, a podcast very recently, as we record this, um, on note taking apps, and they talked about the flow. And apparently, there are some note taking apps where the flow of the pencil is a little a little delayed. So uh, whatever those developers haven't quite gotten it right, but the but the developers who get it right, it's just magical. Well, Doc, it's always been fun catching up with you. I'll be curious to see where you are 
a couple of years from now when we when we follow up to this episode to see how you're using the iPad uh, and uh, if it has surpassed your use of the Mac because it sounds like you've you've dove in to the the iPad world um, and I'm I, getting there. I, I I think we're going to I mean, we've got to we've really got to see some bigger improvements to the iPad. Um, you know, in terms of multitasking and in terms of file management. If we don't, I will be very, very disappointed. But those seem long since due. Um, you know, started a little bit with iOS 9, stalled a little bit with iOS 10. I'm I'm hoping we'll see something on that front soon, but who knows? It's been seven years that this thing has been out. And I, the hardware has improved tremendously. And, uh, you know, I, uh, the software has improved. There's no question about it. Obviously, it has. But, boy, it, it could be so much more with, without, without making it harder to use. Well, on that note, I think we're going to wrap it up. Uh, everybody, head over to leancrow.com and just subscribe to uh, the feed over there. It's, it's, it's fun. It's instructive. And uh, I just, you're one of my favorite people to read. So I'm, I'm so Thank happy you. you came back on the show. Um, do you, uh, do you tweet much? I tweet more than I ought to. If I <laughs> didn't tweet, uh, and t- tweeting has taken away from my blogging. Uh, yeah, I tweet at drdrang, Dr. Drang. Excellent. And you can find our show notes over at, um, relay.fm slash MPU. This is show 372. So we'll have show notes in there. Um, you can reach us. Katie's on Twitter at, at Katie Floyd. I am at Max Barkey, and we are at Mac Power Users. I'd like to thank our sponsors this week, my node, one password, Omni, and Eero. And we will see you all in a couple weeks. Actually, we'll see you all next week. <laughs>